When we look at the life of Joseph, it's easy to major on the happy side. His rise to power, his influence on Pharaoh, his plan to save Egypt from drought. But the road to the king's palace was filled with pain, problems, and potholes. What if we could sit down with Joseph today? What wisdom would he share with us? Well, you're just a few minutes away from that conversation, one you shouldn't miss. Welcome to The Land and the Book. It's a one-hour magazine-style program that covers most everything worth knowing about the Middle East. Dr. Charlie Dyer is our host, and I'm John Gager. Hey, where do you look for hope? I mean, in today's turbulent world, many people find themselves adrift in just a sea of hopelessness and despair. What comfort do we have as believers? You know, John, Scripture makes it clear that our hope is the future that God has planned for us and the world. If you need an extra dose of hope these days, and frankly, who doesn't, we encourage you to tune into Life in Messiah's third annual prophecy conference, Uncovering the Messages of the Minor Prophets. You'll hear from world-class teachers like Dr. Michael Rodelnik, Dr. Tim Sigler, and others about this major topic from the Minor Prophets. We're certain that learning about God's plan for the church Israel and the world will encourage you and motivate you to be involved in what he is doing. To sign up for this free live streaming event, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. Be sure to sign up today. The conference begins September 30. All right. Thank you, Charlie. And let's dig into today's look at current events, which is segment one every week. A professor at Haifa University created a stir a few weeks ago when he announced that the Jewish people make up less than 47% of the population living west of the Jordan River. How accurate are his numbers, and what impact does this have on peace talks for the region? John, Mark Twain popularized a statement about the three different types of lies, and the third type was statistics. I think that's crucial to understanding this professor's statement. The professor was referring to all people living west of the Jordan River. Now, that would include Israel plus everyone in the areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority and everyone in the Gaza Strip, which is controlled by Hamas. Now, starting with that geographical assumption, he then concludes there are 7.45 million Jews and 7.53 million Arabs. That puts the Jewish population at 47%. But the part glossed over in those numbers is the fact that Israel doesn't claim the Gaza Strip, which is where 2 million of those Arabs live. And The Arab population in the West Bank, much of which is under the Palestinian control, is a little over 3 million. So 5 million of the 7.5 million Arabs are actually not part of the physical country of Israel. According to Israel's official Central Bureau of Statistics, about 9.5 million people live in Israel proper. Now of those individuals, almost 7 million are Jews, almost 2 million are Arabs, and just under a half million are classified as belonging to neither group. So within Israel proper, the Jewish population is made up not of 47%, but of 74%. They're not a minority. Israel really is a Jewish state that has an Arab minority. I believe the professor may have had two reasons for presenting the statistics the way he has. First, he did want to highlight the population growth within the larger area, which he believes is unsustainable. Now, by lumping everyone together, he was able to inflate the numbers. Uh, Second, he might be trying either to push Israel into accepting either a one-state solution or a two-state solution with diminished boundaries for Israel proper. In either case, I think the study isn't helpful because it compares the Jewish population of Israel to the Arab population of Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. Mm -hmm. Now, finding a pathway forward that acknowledges Israel's rightful claims to the land 
While respecting the rights of the Palestinians, that isn't easy. But trying to solve the problem using flawed statistics just won't work. Yeah, it doesn't add up for sure. Well, Egypt announced an increase in locally produced wheat. They also announced plans to export electricity to Europe via Greece. I would think, Charlie, given the situation with Ukraine, that would be particularly strategic. Are these steps toward progress, or is there something else behind these headlines? Yeah, and in this case, progress isn't as rosy as it might seem. Now, Egypt's wheat harvest ended with 4.2 million tons of wheat collected from farmers. That's a 20% increase over the 3.5 million tons collected last year, and that's good news. However, the target for this year had been 6 million tons, so they actually fell 30% short of their goal. Egypt has to import wheat to feed its people, and 80% of that wheat had come from Ukraine and Russia. Uh, They're now trying to make up for that shortfall by purchasing wheat on the open market at higher prices. And the global economic crisis has pushed the Egyptian pound down to all-time lows. It's lost 20% of its value against the dollar just since March. They're spending more money to buy wheat. Uh, The other announcement out of Egypt was that plan to export electricity to Europe via an underground electric cable extending from Egypt to Greece. That could very well help with the energy crisis in Europe. And Egypt said it would use solar power and natural gas to generate the electricity. But here's the problem. No timetable for the project was given. And in the meantime, Egypt has begun reducing lighting to streets and public squares to preserve its own power supply. Egypt's economy is fragile, and a stable food supply and dependable power supply are essential. Now, with a population of over 100 million, Egypt's president is trying to walk a fine line between austerity and keeping the population from becoming restive. And That's no small feat in these economically challenged days. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, Middle East authority. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book, where we're working our way through a list of current event stories, all based in the Middle East. The nuclear agreement with Iran is still not finalized, but it looks as if it will be in the very near future. What exactly is included in that agreement, and how will Israel respond to it? This on-again, off-again deal is definitely proving to be elusive, but apparently the new deal, if it is finally approved, will be implemented in four phases. On the day of signing, Iran would freeze its enrichment of uranium. However, they'll be allowed to keep all the uranium they've already enriched. And it's no accident that they announced last week they're bringing more centrifuges online, likely to increase the total amount of processed uranium before those centrifuges get switched off. The second phase of the agreement will take 30 days, and it requires President Biden to bring the deal to Congress for its approval. 60 days after congressional approval, the U.S. would then notify the International Atomic Energy Agency of its decision to rejoin the agreement. And then, after an additional 60 days, the U.S. will formally return to the deal and all sides will begin removing sanctions. Now, Israel remains opposed to the deal. It doesn't extend the time limit before the deal expires, which is when Iran would be allowed to continue its work on nuclear weapons. And that expiration date is just over seven years away, in 2030. And in the meantime, it would give Iran access to $100 billion to help build up their military and expand funding of terrorism. The U.S. has assured Israel that we won't allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons and that we're developing a credible military option should it be needed. But Israel is very reluctant to trust our rather vague promises. Uh, Israel just signed a deal to buy new refueling planes, 
which could help it launch its own attack against Iran. Those are scheduled to begin arriving in 2025. Meanwhile, the Israeli government continues to work on plans for its own possible attack. So right now, uh, one might say Israel's leaders are hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. Hmm. Charlie, I'm still scratching my head asking the big question here. What do we think as a nation, we as Americans are getting out of this deal, other than a slightly prolonged development of the Iranian nuclear bomb? Uh, The hope is lower prices for oil and gasoline. Uh, If Iran's uh, allowed to start uh, exporting uh, its own energy, uh, that could come into the world market and help drive the prices of oil and gasoline down. And uh, right now, that's uh, probably the main driving point, though no one's actually mentioning that directly. Well, it certainly comes at a very dangerous price, it seems to me. Well, with the world scrambling for renewable energy sources, several startups in Amazing Israel are focused on what is being called green hydrogen. Charlie, what exactly is green hydrogen? Well, John, hydrogen has the potential to be a viable, scalable solution to meet the energy needs of of a lot of sectors like long-haul trucking, shipping on the seas, airlines, steel and cement production, you know, key infrastructure that's energy intensive. Hydrogen can replace fossil fuels in those areas because it's energy dense and it produces no pollution. But producing and storing hydrogen have always been the main obstacles. Uh, Green hydrogen simply refers to being able to produce and store and utilize pollution-free hydrogen safely and efficiently. And that's where these projects from Amazing Israel come in. Two companies, Electric, that is E-L-E-C-T-R-I-Q, Global, and Hydro-X, are each focusing on ways to mix hydrogen with other compounds to store and transport it in a non-flammable, cost-efficient way, which can then be converted back into hydrogen prior to use. The third company, H2 Pro, I like that, has developed a process to separate hydrogen and oxygen from water with a far higher 95% system efficiency. And the fourth company, GenCell, has developed standalone hydrogen-powered generators that unleash the power of fuel cells in an inexpensive and emission-free way to power things like cell towers, schools, water purification sites, and more using small tanks of liquid ammonia. Uh, Someday hydrogen might be as common as gasoline and diesel to power our economy, and some very innovative countries in amazing Israel are working hard to make that day a reality as soon as possible. Thanks, Charlie. Hey, what if we could sit down with Joseph today? What wisdom would he share with us? That's the conversation we're having coming up. Then Charlie takes a look at Bible questions. Yours may be one of them. It's all ahead, that and so much more on today's edition of The Land and the Book. When we look at the life of Joseph, it's easy to major on the happy side. His rise to power, his influence on Pharaoh, his plan to save Egypt from drought. But the road to the king's palace was filled with pain, problems, and potholes. (laughs) Hey, what if we could sit down with Joseph today? What wisdom would he share with us? We're about to uncover the Joseph Principles next on The Land and the Book. So glad you're with us today. I'm John Geiger, and before we head off to Egypt... What do you say we head to this thought on sharing Jesus with a Jewish friend? Can you talk to your Jewish friends about heaven and hell? Is that an appropriate conversation? Let's ask Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel. What do you think, Greg? Absolutely. There's a lot of different ways that you can talk to them about heaven and hell. 
Uh, there's one quotation in Daniel 12, but the time your people, everyone whose name is found in the book of life, will be delivered. That sounds like the book of heaven and hell. Orthodox Jewish people believe in the scriptures, so if you share with them, they will definitely deal with the claims that you said. Conservative people are basically just whether they're a good person or not, they'll go to heaven or hell. And reform people believe that their memories are lived on through their children. So I really hope that reformed Jews have lots of children. Otherwise, they have no memory. So they're not offended if I talk about heaven and hell, but I'll probably get more than one opinion. Yes, it's always good to ask them about eternal life, and you get to know uh, where they're at, whether they actually believe that this is a place, whether they believe uh, good works will get them there. Um, sometimes reform Jewish people believe that in a technological perfection of science and technology that we're going to have a perfect world. Well, to that, I say, look at my iPhone. This is not improving my life. <laughs> That's Greg Savin, who serves with Rock of Israel here on The Land and The Book. After failing nine jobs in his first six years after college, Steve Scott learned the laws of life success by studying the book of Proverbs. As a result, Steve and his business partners built more than a dozen multi-million dollar companies from scratch, achieving billions of dollars in sales. He's the co-founder of the American Telecast Corporation, Total Gym Fitness, and Scott is a popular international speaker on the subjects of personal and professional achievement and the application of biblical wisdom and Jesus' teaching. Stephen has written several books uh, and is the best-selling author of The Richest Man Who Ever Lived. But today, we're here to talk about a favorite Bible character, Joseph. Hey, thanks for connecting with our listeners today on The Land and the Book, Steve. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, John. Well, before being abducted, uh, Joseph is in Dothan, southwest of the Sea of Galilee. But his brothers sell him into slavery, and he ends up 300 miles away in Egypt, Probably a two-week journey. What do you think was going through Joseph's mind at this point, Steve? You know what? It's hard to tell. He was 17 years old. He was in disbelief. He had been the most favored son of his father, and now he's going to a place where he has absolutely no rights. Not even a right to health, not a right to eat, not a right to drink, uh, not a right to humane treatment. Everything in his life had been ripped away. And yet, what we see from the very beginning is that God was with him. He had an intimacy with God that uh, many of us don't have. In fact, I'd say most people don't have. And so judging from his response to everything, I'd have to say that his confidence, even at 17, was in God. You know, I'm thinking uh, of Joseph, whether he's in a wagon or whether he's on foot, we don't really know. We're not told. It would be hard enough, though, to endure the physical difficulties of that 300-mile journey, let alone the emotional, excruciating journey of coming to grips with the fact that his own brothers had put him into this. They'd sold him like property. That just had to be excruciating. In your book, you encourage us, turn off the power of anxiety and sorrow. That sounds nice. It sounds appealing. But how? What did Joseph do that we can somehow replicate? Okay, here's what's amazing, is uh, he did do all that. And how do we know it? Because over and over again, his bosses, whether it was the Pharaoh, the prison warden, or uh, Potiphar, quote, they knew God was with him, okay, because of his successes. And the only way you can do that 
is to come into the moment. People spend half their lives, literally half of the time we're awake. Our mind is either in the past. It might be an unkind word that was said before I left for work. It might be the driver that cut me off. It might be something somebody said on the way into the office. Mm -hmm. Uh, So our mind dwells in the past or the future. We're thinking, okay, what's for lunch? That's the future. And so the only way Joseph could be as successful and hear the whispers of God was to live in the moment because God only dwells in the moment. Jesus reveals that, in fact, he commands that we not be in the future, that we not be in the past, but that we do come in the moment, John 4, 35, and he shows us how. He gives us three reset buttons. So the red flags, all worry, fear, anxiety, stress comes when my mind is in the future, even if it's only a couple of minutes in the future. All sorrow, regret, anger, bitterness, all of that comes when our mind is in the past. Jesus said in John four thirty five, he said, do you not say there are four months and then come the harvest? I tell you, behold, look up. The fields are white on the harvest. And so the red flags are any of those traits, uh, sorrow, anxiety, stress, that we're not in the moment. And then Jesus gives us three powerful reset buttons that we can push. And Joseph had to be in the moment. If he was in the past, he would be angry, bitter, mm-hmm. resentful. If he was in the future, he'd be thinking, where's my next meal coming from? Yeah. He had to be in the moment to experience God. And so we want to be in the moment with God. And Jesus shows us exactly how to do that. Steve Scott is the best-selling author of The Richest Man Who Ever Lived, Mentored by a Millionaire, Simple Steps to Impossible Dreams, and The Greatest Words Ever Spoken. Well, I I think about uh, Joseph's Egyptian adventure, and we come to his service in the home of an influential man named Potiphar. You mentioned him a moment ago. Potiphar has a wife and servants and a business, and seeing Joseph's competence, Potiphar places him in charge of his entire household. And all was well until Potiphar's wife's attempts to seduce Joseph went awry. And Joseph was falsely accused of rape, which put him in prison. And that takes us to another of the principles that you uh, cover in the book. Be empowered to forgive even when you don't want to, even the worst of your offenders. What steps do we need to take to make this happen? Okay. Now, once again, Christ showed us how to do that. We're commanded. In fact, he said, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And C.S. Lewis put it like this, and we quote him in the book. He said, everybody thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. (laughs) And uh, he also said, if we're a Christian, we must forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable with us. And Jesus shows us precisely. In fact, he told Peter, Peter finally forgave somebody seven times in a day, comes to Jesus and he's all excited. Hey, how many times are we supposed to? Seven times? He's thinking, I did it, man. I did it. And Jesus says, no, seven times 70. And it's like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm back to square one. How can I forgive somebody 490 times? I mean, that's what's <laughs> going through his mind. So Jesus gives him this incredible parable that changes everything. We don't forgive because we feel like it or because the other person deserves it. We forgive because God has forgiven us a greater debt than anybody could ever inflict on us. Our sin debt to God is billions of dollars, and anybody's debt against us is 10 cents. 
After failing nine jobs in his first six years after college, he learned the laws of life success by studying the book of Proverbs. As a result, Steve Scott and his business partners built more than a dozen multi-million dollar companies from scratch. We're talking with him today about the life of Joseph based on his book, The Joseph Principles. Okay, so Joseph is considered a type of Christ. And in the book, you comment, when you have true intimacy with Jesus, everything else in life, even your greatest hurts, loses its crippling power over you. Let's go further down this path because I think this is absolutely critical. What would you identify as common obstacles to our having intimacy with Jesus? Intimacy with God begins, actually comes as we meditate in Christ's words and bring those words into our life. He shows us at the Last Supper how to have intimacy. He said, he who has my teachings and keeps them, he it is who loves me. My Father will love him, and I too will love him, and I'll reveal myself to him. So intimacy comes as we hear and do what Jesus said, empowered by grace through faith, through the Holy Spirit, but learning his words. Most Christians I meet, even Christian leaders that I have a ministry to, they don't know what Jesus said. They think he made a few statements. He made 1,900 statements, John, 1,900. He said, my words are spirit and life. So I found that if we meditate on his words and bring his words that he spoke into our life, it opens up a channel for the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus meant in John 14, 26, when he said, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance whatsoever things I have said. Let me just make this comparison. Uh, you go into a restaurant, man, you're really hungry, okay? You went two hours past your lunchtime, you're ready to eat. They bring you the menu, okay? A menu is information, and it tells you what you can eat. But that's all it does. It's just information. Then they bring your food, and you eat the food, and that's sustenance. That's the power of Christ's words. That's John chapter 6, where he said, hey, except you eat me and drink of my blood, eat of my flesh. And he goes on to say his flesh and blood, those are spiritual uh, allegories to his word. His word is spirit and life. So if you want the spirit and life of Jesus Christ, you want intimacy with the Father, then look at his words in the gospel and let the Holy Spirit infuse his spirit and his life into yours. Humility is a trait that we never fail to see in Christ and those who would be like him. I find it noteworthy that when Pharaoh brings Joseph from the prison to the palace, he says, I understand you're the big dream expert. But we read in Genesis 41, 16, Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it has nothing to do with me. God will give Pharaoh an answer for his own good. That's humility. What do you think God wants us to really understand when it comes to humility? Well, once again, people said, I wish I had the gift of interpreting dreams like Joseph. He didn't have that gift. You're absolutely right. He did not have the gift of interpretation, but he could hear the whispers of God because he meditated on God. God fills his vision. We, you know, how do we get God to fill our vision? Uh, you know, if I'm going on a driving trip uh, next week, and I'll look through that windshield, and sometimes I'll see a huge storm in front of me, and it fills my vision. Well, Jesus shows us, and we get into that, how to have the vision of God that he wants us to have. And Joseph had that vision. 
That's why he didn't fret, because he knew his God was sovereign, and his God was a God of love. And when you're talking to someone whose daughter was just murdered, what can you possibly say that can bring comfort? And what I told my dear friend was God was there. God was there. Your daughter wasn't alone when that guy came in with the gun. God was there, and your daughter was ready for God. And she fell asleep on that floor, and she was face-to-face with the Savior she loved. And that's, see, we have to realize, for most people, Christianity is a book and information. We want the vision of the Father that Jesus gives us. Joseph had that vision, and that's why his world didn't come tumbling down when he was sold into slavery. That's why he didn't grow bitter and resentful and angry and unforgiving. That would have cut him off from God. He wanted to maintain that intimacy with God. And if you said, Steve, what's Joseph Principles really about? It's about coming into intimacy with the most loving and wonderful and righteous and holy God that we could imagine. But a God who delights in mercy. And thankfully, because man, without mercy, you and me, but it doesn't matter what we do, we're gone. But our God, unlike all the gods of mythology, is a God who said he delights in mercy. That's Steve Scott, who's written The Joseph Principles. There's a link to the book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Appreciate your time. Thank you for the insights and uh, hope to visit with you again sometime, Steve. Hey, anytime, John. Thank you, dear brother. Thank you so much. Coming up here on The Land and the Book, you know what it is. It's a fresh set of questions from you, listeners just like you. Maybe it's one of your questions we're going to get to. Stick around for more on The Land and the Book. If there is just one drop of curiosity running through the blood in your veins, you must not miss this next segment. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie. What are we about to do, Charlie, for somebody who's a newcomer to the program? Uh, We're about to hit one of my favorite parts where they get to ask their questions, and I get to look in the Bible and hopefully provide an answer. And those questions are welcome anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Hey, where do you look for hope, though? Uh, In today's turbulent world, many people find themselves sort of adrift in a sea of hopelessness and despair. What comfort do we have as believers? Well, Scripture makes it clear that our hope is in the future that God has planned for us and the world. If you need an extra dose of hope these days, and frankly, who doesn't, we encourage you to tune in to Life in Messiah's third annual prophecy conference, Uncovering the Messages of the Minor Prophets. You'll hear from world-class teachers like Dr. Michael Rodelnik, Dr. Tim Sigler, and others about this major topic from the Minor Prophets. We're certain that learning about God's plan for the church, Israel, and the world will encourage you and motivate you to be involved in what He is doing. To sign up for this free live streaming event, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. Be sure to sign up today. The conference begins September 30. Well, Linny is our first questioner of the day, taking us to Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, where it says that the king of Israel is to write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, 
by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Here's the question. Do we know if any king of Israel actually followed this instruction? You know, we have no written record of a king actually following this command. Of course, we don't have any record of a king deliberately refusing to follow the command. So in reality, we don't know, though I assume some kings did choose to follow God's command, while others, perhaps most, since there were more wicked kings than good ones, just ignored the command. But I do find one interesting detail that I believe does help us. King Joash came to the throne when he was just seven years old. He followed wicked Queen Athaliah, who tried to murder all the descendants of David. This young king was aided and taught by the elderly priest Jehoiada. Uh, the details of this event are found in Second Chronicles chapters 22 to 24. But in chapter 23, verse 11, the writer describes Joash's inauguration day, and it says, Jehoiada and his sons brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. They presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. Now, they didn't require this seven-year-old king to write out the covenant, but instead they presented him with a copy. Now, I think this was done in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 17. Even at the age of seven, he was expected to study and follow God's word. Now, that's the one incident we have, and I think it shows the intent of that command was being fulfilled, at least in the life of this young king. Charlie, don't you think, though, that the act of actually writing out the book of the law, that that would in itself kind of make you more sensitive to what God is asking? Absolutely, and I think that's why God required it of individuals. But again, this seven-year-old, the ability for him to write, and even to uh, write accurately, could have taken a long time. So I think the, the priests were helping this youngster along. Let's go back just one book in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 12. We're old and young firstborn slave during the angel passing over, that last and greatest plague of them all. For a long time, Lorraine says, I thought it was just children, but weren't some adults firstborn to their parents? And what about females who were actually the firstborn? What I want to know is who exactly was killed during the Passover? Yeah, and I think the answer is found in, in chapter 11, verse 5. You know, God said, Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who's at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. God doesn't put any time limit on the age of the ones to be put to death. He simply says every firstborn son as well as the firstborn of the cattle. So what I would assume is the statement included all firstborn males of whatever age. Even if a girl was the first child born, it was the firstborn male child who was destined to inherit the, the double portion of the father's property. So the firstborn male, even if he had an older sister, would apparently have been put to death. All right, from the Old Testament all the way to prophecy, we're going to uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 3 through 8. David asks, what do the four beasts in Daniel represent? He says, I saw a note in a study Bible that said the lion with eagle's wings was Britain and America. The bear was Russia, the leopard was a coalition of Far Eastern nations, and the fourth beast is a beastly federation that will control the whole world. I know others say the four beasts are the same as the successive empires in Daniel's vision in chapter 2. What's your opinion? Yeah, and this can be somewhat complex, so let me try and summarize it and, and simplify it without becoming simplistic. Now, I start with the structure of the book of Daniel. Chapter 1 and then chapters 8 to 12 are written in Hebrew, but right in the middle, chapters 2 through 7 switch to Aramaic. That'd be like uh, reading a book and suddenly in the middle it switches from English to French. I mean, it would definitely stand out. Beyond that, 
these six chapters written in Aramaic are in a, a Semitic pattern. It's called a chiasm. That is, the first and last chapters are parallel. The second and next to last are also parallel, and the third and fourth are parallel. Uh, that parallelism is really clear and dramatic. Now, I say all that because that helps us understand the four beasts. That is, the last chapter, chapter 7, is parallel to chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 has four empires uh, that are followed by God's kingdom. Chapter 7 has four empires that are followed by God's kingdom. And then rather than trying to read something else into chapter 7, like England, the U.S., or Russia, I believe Daniel provides the interpretation. In chapter 2, the first empire, he says, was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And then he says the second empire is the one that follows them. Well, that was Medo-Persia. So the first empire in chapter 7, I think being parallel, is Babylon, and the second would be Medo-Persia. And Daniel actually in chapter 8 names the two kingdoms that follow Babylon. He says it's Medo-Persia and Greece. Uh, So it's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece in both of those chapters. And then the fourth empire, Daniel doesn't name, but we do know who it is. It's uh, the empire that would have been around when the Messiah is coming to set up his kingdom. Well, when Jesus came the first time announcing himself as Messiah, it was Rome. And uh, therefore, a revived Roman empire will probably be present when Messiah comes the second time. So the four empires in both chapters, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And I think that's internally consistent. All right, we've got a follow-up question from David here. Based on the fourth beast being a revived Roman entity, usually I've read that the little horn in verse 8 is then of European origin. Some say, though, that he, the Antichrist, has to be Jewish, or else Israel wouldn't accept his offer of a seven-year peace treaty. But I'm reading another writer who says the Antichrist fits the characteristics of the Mahdi, the Muslim figure. What do you think about all this? The identity of the Antichrist isn't revealed, so I think it's a little bit dangerous to speculate. Now, I don't believe the Bible demands the Antichrist be of Jewish ancestry, though it's at least possible. But we need to remember the leaders of those other empires in Daniel's vision weren't Jewish. Neither was the leader of the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. So while I personally see the Antichrist empire centered in Europe, that's not even demanded as well, since the Roman Empire incorporated most of the Mediterranean basin. But I do have a problem with the Antichrist being Muslim. My main difficulty is that the Antichrist is the person the Jewish nation is going to make an agreement with and evidently place their trust for security in. And I find it hard to see Israel trusting in or depending on any Muslim country or leader for its safety and security. Now, I also have a problem with a Muslim fitting Daniel's description of the Antichrist. The hallmark of Islam is the decree that there's no other God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. But in Daniel 11, uh, we know that this future leader will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, nor will he regard any god but exalt himself above them all. Uh, that description just doesn't seem to fit any Muslim leader. Got time for just one more question. Judy bought a book titled Then and Now Bible Maps from Rose Publishing. It's got other biblical information related to Bible prophets and judges, kings, disciples, and others. I'm wondering if you're familiar with it and if the information is biblically accurate. Yeah, actually, it's been a while since I I looked at that book, but from what I can remember, I think it's really a very helpful book. Uh, The maps and charts are clear and accurate, and I think they do a great job of of presenting what can otherwise be uh, confusing uh, biblical details in easy-to-read chart form, and they provide graphs and maps. No book except the Bible is perfect, but I think you made a good choice in that uh, addition to your library. And I would add here for others, uh, if you really are serious about studying the Bible, in a shelf near your, your desk or near your place where you sit to read your Bible, you really ought to have a Bible atlas and a Bible dictionary and uh, eventually start building up a small library of other reference books like this one that Judy asked about. 
they're just incredibly helpful to deal with parts of the Bible that uh, you might be unfamiliar with, but they'll help bring the Bible to light in a way that will make sense to you. And uh, I just can't recommend that highly enough. Charlie, you have often mentioned the Moody Atlas. Talk about that a second. Yeah, Barry Beitzel's Moody Atlas of the Bible is an incredible atlas. And at my desk at home, right over my desk is where that atlas is sitting because I trust it that much. All right. Thank you for those answers, Charlie. Thank you for your questions. And thank you for sticking around for the devotional. Who's? It's Charlie's and it's next here on The Land and the Book. Hey, thanks for joining us today on The Land of the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager with the confession that when I married my wife, I was a city boy or a suburbanite with absolutely zero understanding of anything agricultural. And Charlie, you know, I think that hampers a lot of us as we read Scripture, wouldn't you say? Uh, It does, John. Uh, Most of us don't understand the parables or the other stories of the Old Testament because we didn't grow up in that kind of environment. That's why I think I have a special appreciation for where you're headed today on your devotional in just a moment. Don't want to give that all away before we get to this firsthand account of what it's like to actually go to the Holy Land and find your own life transformed. Listen to this. Hi, my name is Johanna, and I was 15 years old when we first went to Israel. And the thing that really struck me the most was seeing that um, the names in the Bible that we so often just cruise over actual real geographical locations and seeing the mountainside where our Saviour was born and that it wasn't a nice greeny pasture with a beautifully built stable but just a rock hollow in a wall and it shows how humble Christ is and how beautiful God is that he can give us the opportunity to see the places that meant the most to him as well. Hello, my name is Bill and a couple of years ago we had the great privilege of taking our um, kids on a two-week trip through Israel and it was just brilliant. The kids had friends along on the trip as well and um, what impressed me most was just being able to show them all these places and seeing the lights come on in their faces when they realized that the places that they'd heard and read about were real. And now two years down the track whenever we read the Bible together we can't have that strange disconnected feeling anymore we're interested in where places were and and um and what it's about and we can picture them now as we think about it so yeah we had a fantastic time you're listening to the land of the book hope that conversation was helpful as i think this one will be as well charlie you know uh when i read scripture I come to a parable like the one you're going to talk about today, the wheat and the tares. I don't even know what a tear is. I mean, I have some idea of what wheat looks like, but what's a tear? Uh, And that's what we'll talk about. And you'll know by the time this parable is over, John. All right, I'm all ears. Go for it. All right. But I've got to start first by telling you a totally unrelated story. And it is that I love golf. Now, you got to get the right impression there. I've been out golfing twice in the past three years. No one will ever confuse me with someone who actually knows what they're doing when they go golfing. (laughs) But I I love the social aspects of golf, especially spending time with good friends. You know, when I lived in Dallas, I had some uh, great golf buddies, Greg, Doug, and Mark. Every so often, though, one of them couldn't make it, and so we'd have another friend come and take his place. And on one occasion, Bryant joined us. I love Bryant, but you'll know in a bit why I don't give his last name. He spent more time hunting for other people's golf balls than he did golfing. On one particular hole, it was beautiful. It was a par three, and along the entire left side of the hole was a field of weeds that were at least six feet tall. 
The four of us teed off. Three of us made it to the hole, putted out, and then realized Bryant wasn't anywhere to be found. As we looked around, we saw these head-high weeds rustling along the fairway. Eventually, he popped out carrying a handful of golf balls. The expression, lost in the weeds, is what came to mind as I watched Bryant hacking his way back onto the course. But getting lost in the weeds happens to more than just golfers. There are occasions when the weeds of life overwhelm us, taking away our perspective. We've all been lost in the weeds at some time. And that brings me back to Jesus' series of parables in Matthew 13, his seven stories with a purpose. In his second parable, Jesus tells the story of an entire harvest that was almost lost in the weeds. But to understand his message, let's return to the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus was speaking. Having just been rejected by the religious leaders, Jesus began speaking in parables. On the one hand, these stories were designed to hide the truth of his teaching from those who had rejected him. At the same time, they were intended to reveal that truth to his true followers. Some have called Jesus' second story the parable of the wheat and the tares. Others call it the parable of the weeds. Whatever you want to call it, Jesus began his story by comparing the kingdom of heaven to a farmer who sowed good wheat seed in his field. Those listening to his story might initially have thought it was just a continuation of his first parable. But then Jesus added an unexpected plot twist. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. The farmer had an enemy who was out to get him. And that enemy chose one of the most malicious ways possible to do it. He took a sack of seed and snuck into the farmer's field in the dead of night. But the seeds weren't wheat or barley. They were tares. Now, why would someone even have a sack of tare seeds? Tares were worthless as a food crop. They had no value except perhaps to be used to destroy a good field of grain. And that's exactly what this enemy intended. The plot was diabolical. He would sow tares in a field just planted. What he did would be undetectable until it was too late. But it's here where we get confused, just like you asked, John. What are tares, and why would they be such a problem? In one sense, tares, or darnel, were just common weeds. It's a type of ryegrass that looks like a close cousin of wheat. It's almost the same shade of green, and it grows a stalk that has a head similar to that of wheat. But that's where the similarities end. Tares have no nutritional value. In fact, they can be mildly poisonous. And like other weeds, tares can take over a field if the seeds are allowed to drop into the ground at the end of the growing season. You didn't want tares growing in your field of wheat. Weeks later, as the plants started to grow, the workers spotted the problem and came to the owner. Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? The farmer knew immediately what had happened. An enemy has done this. The workers saw only one solution to the problem and asked if the farmer wanted them to go into the field to weed out the tares. But while pulling up the tares, the workers would also accidentally pull up stalks of wheat, which would harm the crop. And as they walked through the field, they would trample on the wheat, causing additional damage. So the farmer had a better idea. Let both plants continue growing until harvest time. At that point, the workers would harvest the field very carefully. They would gather up and bundle the tares and take them to be burned before their seeds could fall onto the field. At the same time, they would gather up the wheat, thresh and winnow it, and take it to the barn for storage. 
This might slow down the process of harvest, but it would preserve the wheat while permanently removing the tares. Everyone understands the story on its most basic level. It was a story built on the worthlessness of tares, the malice of the wicked neighbor, and the wisdom of a skillful farmer. Most in the audience listened and nodded their heads as they probably attached different people's faces to the characters in the story. But the disciples were perplexed. They later came to Jesus and asked him to explain the story. And his explanation was fascinating. He was the farmer and the field was the world. The good seed was the sons of the kingdom, those who were the true followers of God, while the tares were the sons of the evil one, those who are Satan's followers in the sense that they share in his rebellion against God. That's why Jesus said the enemy in the story represented the devil. Rather than one or two points of comparison, almost every point of this story had a meaning. Even the time of harvest and the reapers were important. Jesus said the time of harvest represents the end of the age, and the reapers represent the angels. But what is the end of the age? Well, in Jewish thinking, there were two main ages. They were living in the age of Gentile domination, and they were looking for the Messianic age, that time when the Messiah will come to set up his kingdom. In fact, the disciples used this same expression later in Matthew 24 when they asked Jesus, what is the sign of your coming, even the end of the age? In that passage, Jesus describes the events that will lead up to his coming, and he said that at that time God will send his angels to gather his people. So what's the point of the story? Well, in one sense, it's a reminder that in the present age, God appears to be allowing good and evil to coexist. People struggle with the question of how a great and good God can allow evil to exist in the world. Jesus' story reminds us that God isn't the author of evil, nor is he helpless in the face of evil. Rather, he allows evil to exist today, because to root out the tares now would also harm the wheat. But in God's eternal plan, a time is coming when he will return to end this age and to usher in his kingdom. By sharing a story about wheat tares and harvest time. Jesus is helping his disciples understand that God might permit evil for a time, but the harvest, his final day of reckoning, is coming. You can count on it. Hmm. There's an interesting note of uh, sobriety to that, isn't there? That day of reckoning is coming. Thanks, Charlie, for those perspectives, and sure appreciate your spending time with us here at The Land and the Book. You've got lots of choices. We know that, whether you're listening online or on air. Thanks for carving out time to be with us. And thanks for letting the station management know that uh, you appreciate the program. Drop them an email or card if you would. I'm John Geiger for our host, Charlie Dyer. Dan Anderson, our producer. Thanks for listening. And do come back next week, won't you, for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.